before we continue um, our series on the door this week, one of the things I feel compelled to do uh, is just kind of speak uh, to, to our world for just a moment. Uh, my heart has been pretty heavy uh, this week when, when I got home from uh, sharing just the, the incredible story of what God has done uh, over um, throughout history uh, in the death, burial, and resurrection of his son. And you watch and you read the accounts of you know, more than 200 people who are killed uh, in Sri Lanka who are worshiping the same Jesus that, that we worship. And then my mind last night goes back to those same things as I hear about a violence in a synagogue in California. And we know that just a, several weeks ago there were violence in Christ Church, New Zealand. We think about the violence in a synagogue about six months ago in Pennsylvania. And I think that for me and probably for you, it just helps us be reminded of just how precarious life can be. But for me, it's also this awakening, and I hope it's an awakening for you, that we're called to live with a boldness as followers of Jesus. We are not guaranteed our tomorrow in this temporary world, and we need to leverage it, all that we have and all that we are for all that he is. How, how can we uh, monitor our own hearts? Uh, what can govern our actions in such a world where things change uh, in such a moment? And I was just drawn to these words in John. I'll read them and then I want to share a story about them. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. In this world, we are like Jesus and there's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. I've heard those words uh, several times over uh, the course of my lifetime. But those words really sank down deep into me, like the, the teeth bit hard from those words. Back in 2012, a documentary was released. I think it's actually available for free on Netflix if you're a Netflixer. Um, it, it's called Love Costs Everything. It showed what was happening within the church in Iraq, particularly a church in, in Baghdad. And the preacher there with his white collar spoke about how they continued to meet even in the face of suicide bomber after suicide bomber after suicide bomber. Bombs had ripped apart their church. And they said, well, why do you keep meeting? And he quoted those words, because we are to live like Jesus. Because perfect love drives out fear. And I think about the believers in Sri Lanka, and I think about believers throughout the world, and how, how do we live in the face of that? We, we live in boldness because perfect love drives out fear. And we know the one who's conquered the grave, and we know the one who's modeled what perfect love is. And so no matter what happens, whether it be thousands of miles away or in our own community, we will keep following this one who drives out fear with love. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know what life will be like. We know that it turns in an instant, 
But if we are obsessed with this Jesus who came and lived and died, and we strive to live in his love, not, not a worldly definition of love, but his love that gives its life for another person, we will find that our gentleness and our peacemaking and our truth and our joy helps transform the lives of many. And so may we live as people that live like Jesus, who live as people of love, even in the face of uh, incredible, incredible things. Let's pray. God, I, I thank you. I thank you for the chance that you have given for us to see more clearly. We're taught a number of things throughout our lifetime. We have to navigate a host of opinions and false uh, teachings. But God, if we can continue to mine the depths of you and how you've revealed yourself through your word and your son, Jesus Christ, we know that we can find truth, a truth that will govern our lives, a truth that will guide us, a truth that will lead us into love, a truth that will make us bold and courageous in the face of overwhelming circumstances. So God, may you cultivate that in us. May you cultivate that in your believers all across the world. May what we hear and what we see drive us closer to you, Father, and may it put a fire in our hearts to help those that we know, those that we're yet to know, those in this community and those beyond to help them come to see your incredible truth and your incredible life. Help us in that, Father. Help us to not only walk through the door of your Son for our own salvation, but that to spur us on to hope that many more are saved and rescued and find life in your kingdom. Guide us in that, Lord, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Last week, we launched this series called The Door. Uh, we, we put the spotlight on the resurrection, and we used these words that Jesus shares in John chapter 10. So, so John, we said, one of, one of Jesus' close friends and, and followers, looked back on Jesus' life, and he said, what stories have to be told? What do people have to know about this Jesus? I can't tell them everything, but what do they have to know? And, and so he included that in his gospel. This is account of the good news of Jesus. And as he did that, he tells us that Jesus made several self-declarations of himself. Maybe you've heard them called these I am statements. And one of them is this statement in John chapter 10, verses 7 through 10. He says, I am the door. I am the gate. Uh, the gate is a door to a sheep pasture, a, pasture, a sheep pen, a sheepfold door and gate, synonymous he says, I am the door, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved, will be rescued. He will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus was saying, if you will believe in me, if you will have faith in me, if you will align your life underneath my authority for my purposes, believing in what I've done and who I am and who my father is, then you will be rescued. A door provides access to What's inside, it connects us from where we are to somewhere we're going. It provides us this inside access, and Jesus provides us inside access to God's kingdom, to what you and I were wired for, to what you and I were made for, to the harmony which he, he, he put into the world in the very beginning and was disrupted by sin. Jesus is the way back to that, and only Jesus. He's the only door that can change our experience of human life, and he changes everything. We don't have time to mind the depths of Jesus, the door again. We did that last week. And so if you weren't with us, I'd encourage you to listen to the podcast, go to our website, listen to the message. 
But what we want to do is we want to start looking at these various doors that you and I encounter in life. We, we said last week that the door is a metaphor. It's a common metaphor in life. We, we use it to speak of opportunities and experiences, choices and decisions. We say phrases like a door opened or a door closed, a door slammed shut. Uh, I don't know if I want to walk through that door or not. And we're talking about choices and decisions and experiences and circumstances. And Jesus changes when we walk through him, our experience of every other door in life. Now, some doors in life, uh, we get to choose to walk through. You may choose to respond to the invitation uh, to go on a date with somebody. You may choose to accept that job position. You, you may choose to adopt. You may, may choose to foster. Doors can open at your choice. But we also know that some doors in life were forced through. We're pushed through, we're, we're shoved through, usually abruptly, and we have no choice in it. And when we're forced through a door, and we're forced into a new experience, when we're forced into a new way of life, and we feel like we had no control over it, it can leave us bewildered, disenchanted, uh, disoriented. Kind of the picture that comes to mind for me is, is Alice in Wonderland. When she's out and she falls through that hole and she just kind of just is forced through it, and she ends up in, in, in this house, and she gets shrunk down, and she walks through this door, and there's this, this whole kind of bewildering, unusual, uncertain place she's in. And there are doors like that for each of us that we're just forced through. And one of those doors we are forced through is the door of grief. I don't know many people, I don't know if I know anybody that intentionally says, um, I, I can't wait to walk through the door of grief. What, what typically happens, we're, we're walking along in the hallway of our life. Doors abound. And the light may be bright or the light may be dim, but we're used to this familiar road. And then suddenly the door of grief opens and we are just forced through it. And we go from living in the light to finding our way among the shadows of, of death and sorrow and uncertainty. Why, why is the door of grief so difficult for us? Some of it has to do with just living in a Western culture. If you read things from other parts of the world, in many places, death is embraced as just a part of life. But we do something in Western culture, particularly America, is that we try to forget that death exists, right? We, we push it away. We don't want to talk about it. When death does happen, we, we try to just kind of go through it privately often, and we're like, I don't really want to go to that door of grief. I don't want you to help me walk through it. I, I don't want to deal with it. We, we push it away. But there are other reasons why death is so difficult, and grief, the door of grief is so difficult. Hopefully, this will help you understand. So in my lifetime, there are many people who have taught me many things. One of the people that has taught me the most is my father. My father, when I was about six, uh, took me outside. Uh, we had gone to the bicycle shop, and we, we bought a, a, a green Schwinn bicycle. I, I don't even know where it is anymore, and it's probably in a landfill somewhere. But it was about this size, and my father took me out to the alley near our house in Tilton, Illinois, and he had me get on. And as I sat on it, he kind of steadied it for me, and he'd let go a little bit, and he taught me how to balance and what it felt like to roll and to balance. And he kept a grip on the seat and a grip on the wheel. 
He taught me how to pedal in what seemed like hours, but probably was just several minutes. He raced up and down the alley with me, teaching me how to ride a bicycle. His voice always right behind my ears. Do this, do that, you've got it. And suddenly his voice grew more distant. And my dad was shouting, you're doing it, Craig, you're doing it. And I was riding a bicycle. My dad taught me how to ride a bicycle. And when he taught me how to ride a bicycle, he introduced me to a whole new world, a whole new experience of of life. Suddenly, now I could go into the woods on a bicycle and I could jump, you know, berms of dirt and I could be a BMX star. Suddenly, I could, I could race around the streets of our neighborhood, and I could, I could pull people over like the California Highway Patrol, these imaginary criminals, and I had my own little motorcycle. You, you would have seen a green Schwinn, but I saw a, a white, you know, California Highway Patrol bike just like Ponch Road. What he taught me opened up a whole other world. He taught me how to change a tire, he taught me how to fish, and a number of other things. And I know that you have people in your life that have taught you. Maybe they taught you how to knit, crochet, sew. Maybe they they taught you how to work with wood. Uh, Maybe they taught you how to scale telephone poles and work on power lines as you apprenticed with someone. Maybe they taught you how to work with livestock, how to take care of a pig and a calf and how the two are different. For city people, that's kind of important. But let me ask you this. Who taught you how to grieve? Who taught us how to grieve? Isn't it interesting in our world full of blog posts and and articles, shelves full in bookstores and libraries of self-help, that self-help and blogs are strangely silent when it comes to grief and to death? Who taught you how to grieve? And if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've walked through the door of Jesus, how has that changed how you grieve? If you've never been taught this, you're you're not alone. That's why we're going to go to some people who sat just like you and I and had to discover what death and grieving were all about. Paul has this interesting relationship with the Thessalonians. Paul, this devout follower of Jesus uh, traveled throughout the Roman world, telling people how great Jesus was and how he changed everything. How if people would just have faith in him, how they'd walk through the door of him, how it would change their experience of life and, and persecution, hardship, and, and, and even grief. In Acts 17, uh, we find Paul in a city called Thessalonica. Paul is there, and there is this tremendous response to what he's sharing about Jesus. That tremendous response is both good and really bad. It's also violent. We, we hear about previous Jewish people and uh, Greeks who, who came to know who Jesus was, who came to believe in who he is and what he did and how he died on the cross, how he rose again, how he had purpose and meaning for their life. They learned all of those things. But there are also a group of people who were disturbed and upset by who Jesus was and what Paul declared about the, the people, the Jewish people, and how Jesus was the fulfillment of those things. And so some violent protests ensued. In fact, they were so violent that Paul and Silas had to leave Thessalonica before they were ready. 
So, so here are these groups of, this group of people who are these new believers in Jesus. They're, they're sitting with Paul and Silas each day. They're, they're learning about the, the various nuances and, and how life with Jesus impacts their life in all these different ways. But Paul and Silas have to leave before they get through all the basics. And one of those basics was, how does Jesus change our view of death and grief? So Paul goes on on his missionary journeys. We, we find him in Acts chapter 18 in Corinth. And as he travels throughout the Roman world, he hears about what's happening in Thessalonica. And as you read 1 Thessalonians, his first letter to them, you hear about how they're still facing persecution, how they're still facing uh, violence, how they're still being persecuted because of their, their faith and their hope in Jesus. But you also learn that they were struggling with something else. You see, because Paul didn't get through all the basics as these new believers face just the realities of human life, one of them being death. They're not sure how to process that. Like, well, the people that we love that, that loved God, when they die, what happens to them? And so this despair and this hopelessness kind of sits in. They're uninformed, just like many of us have been uninformed about death and grief. So here's what Paul writes to them. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. The entire passage is verses 13 through 18, but we're really going to primarily focus on verse 13, verse 14 in a little bit, and then verse 18 at the end. Here's how Paul begins. He says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. One of the first things that I want you to see, because it's something that those Thessalonian believers would have felt, is how deeply personal Paul is with them. These words are full of compassion. They're born out of compassion. He says, brothers and sisters, he addresses them as family. Uh, there was a time within the church in America where followers of Jesus referred to each other as brothers and sisters. And at some point, some probably weird and creepy people used it way too much. And so we, we, don't, we don't use that terminology very often anymore. I was sitting in a, a hospital this, this, this last week. Someone was awaiting surgery and their family came in. And I've, I've met this gentleman uh, once or twice and as soon as he comes in, the, the first thing he does is he calls me brother. And there's something uh, incredibly soothing about that. That there's this deep connection, this deep bond we share, not because we know each other's lives intimately, but because we're followers of Jesus. Yesterday afternoon, we were sitting in a restaurant in Greenwood. We'd met my mother and father, and we were going to uh, play some games and, and have lunch together after we prayed around our table holding hands, I got up to get a drink at the fountain. And when I was done filling my cup, a gentleman who was pretty burly and big and strong, I, I take him for maybe a guy who works construction and was there over lunch. He says, I just want you to know that was pretty impactful to see you praying. I do that with my family too. And he didn't call me brother. He certainly didn't call me sister. Uh, but in that moment, you could tell that we, we share this bond in Christ that breaks down walls. We're, we're family. And, and that's, what, that's what Paul does here. He, he may be miles away, but he, they're family. He cares deeply for them, brothers and sisters. So it's out of compassion, he says, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. He, he doesn't say, 
well, you guys are dense. You haven't gotten this yet. No, he, he wants them to have information they didn't yet have. He knows that he and Silas left early. They, they were forced out. I want you to have the information that you've been missing. I understand how your hearts break for those that are dying, and I, I, I want you to see things the way God sees them. I want you to see how walking through the door of Jesus changes everything in your life, including this door of grief, this, this door of sorrow, this door of death. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. He doesn't want them to grieve like the rest of mankind. You may not know this, but in the Greek culture, there was a lot of pessimism that surrounded death. Kind of this philosophy ruled the day of you're going to die, get over it. When you die, it's all gone. It's all over. A lot of pessimism. Our, our archaeologists have uncovered writings, actually from Thessalonica and a number of other cities as well, that speak about the view of death in Thessalonica in this day. And I want you to hear these words from one Thessalonian, not a follower of Jesus. He says this. He says, the experts in astrology tell of an early death for me. Though it be so, I care nothing for that, Seleucus. All men have the same way to Hades, the underworld. If mine be quicker than others, I shall be face to face with Minos sooner. Because we're unfamiliar with some of these things, he's basically saying, uh, someone who studies the stars, uh, i.e. not a follower of Jesus, uh, says that my death is coming very fast. And while it might be the case, I don't really think about it because all of us are going to go to Hades. Life's going to be over. Uh, we'll, we'll hang out with Zeus's son, Minos. It's very pessimistic. It's all going to come to an end. It'll get here when it gets here. And that was the, the dominant philosophy in, in, in Paul's day, the dominant thoughts regarding death. And so here are these Thessalonians who grew up in this culture, who now know who Jesus is. They believe in faith. They've aligned their lives with him. They've stepped through that door. And Paul says, listen, I don't want you to grieve like all those other people around you who have no hope. I don't want you to have this pessimistic view of death. I don't want you to think that, that there's, there's no hope beyond the grave. And so what he shares next instills them with hope. But before we read verse 14... I want you to think about your own life for a moment. We're years removed, centuries removed from the culture of Thessalonica in the first century. I probably could say with about 100% accuracy that no one in this room still believes in the pantheon of deities uh, in Greek mythology. But isn't there a different kind of pessimism even in our own society and world surrounding death? Those same negative thoughts that say, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to go there. Let me distance myself from thoughts of death and talk of grief. If you have walked through the door of Jesus, your whole experience of death changes. How? Well, let's hear Paul's words from his own mouth and pen. Verse 14, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. How, how do you grieve as those who have hope? By remembering that when Jesus came, 
He died. He conquered death. He rose victoriously over it. And all who believe in him know that death does not have the final say, that they will live forever, that it's just a transition. He intentionally uses the word sleep in here. It speaks to the temporary nature of death and the life of one who follows Jesus. Death does not prevail. You live beyond the grave. That's part of the hope we have in Jesus. And so he teaches these early believers. I know we didn't get to this. We were forced out of town. I know you've seen people you love die. But here's what you've got to remember is that because Jesus rose from the grave, you will rise from the grave. There is hope for you. It completely changes how you view grief. Grief is not this pessimistic, these feelings associated with the pessimistic ending of death, but rather grief is this thing that, that helps you process death in light of the resurrection, knowing that one day those who love Jesus and follow Jesus will be raised to life. There's incredible hope in that. And this isn't the only place that Paul champions that. Maybe you're familiar with the famous words of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He ends in what we call verse 54 by saying, death has been swallowed up in victory. And listen to these words in 55 and 56. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The pain of death is sin. The the harshness of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. Why? Because he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's there's victory over death. Death does not have the final say. And so when you walk through the door of Jesus, when when you see that there's life, he provides you access to what God intended, and God intended to dwell with humanity forever. And when we have faith, we have confidence, we align our lives with him, he brings us into this place where death does not prevail, but life prevails in the end. And by the way, that's part of the story of Revelation, right? Right? We obsess over revelation. We obsess over dragons and images and and bowls and and trumpets. But the overwhelming message of, of revelation is that there is hope because followers of Jesus prevail in the end. It changes everything about grief. Death does not have the final say. When we walk through the door of Jesus, it changes how we see the door of grief. If that's not enough for you, I want to encourage you the words of Jesus from his own mouth. John chapter 11, Jesus comes to Bethany. He is a city, not a person. And he comes to Mary and Martha, sisters of a man named Lazarus, who Jesus was close to. And when Mary and Martha see him, they just start weeping, and Jesus weeps with them because Lazarus has been dead. And Jesus proclaims to them these words. Verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. He goes on to say in verse 26, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? He's proclaiming the very same thing, that death does not have the final say. That when you trust in me, Jesus says, when you believe in me, Jesus says, death is temporary because there's life beyond the grave. The door of Jesus changes the door of grief. We may be abruptly pushed through the door of grief. It always seems to come like a thief. It kills those that we love. It seems to destroy and to wreck our worlds. But it does not have the final say. We can grieve as those who have hope. Because we know that death is not the end. So here's the deal. Death does not have the final say. 
when it comes to the death of those that you love? If you have people, and all of us do, who have already breathed their last in this world and they were followers of Jesus, guess what? They will rise. They will live. It's not the end. Beautiful words of Jesus, famous words of Jesus. John chapter 3. John John tells us these words about Jesus. He says that um, whoever believes uh, in Jesus Christ will not perish but have everlasting life. Those who believe in Jesus, those whose faith is in Jesus, those who walk through the door live forever with him in perfect harmony that we anticipate as human beings. It's not the end. Maybe you're asking the question, well, well, Craig, that's great. If death doesn't have the final say in the lives of those that I love that follow Jesus, what about those that I've loved that I'm not sure were following Jesus? Two things in that regard. It's a great question, first of all. Uh, What I would also share is that, one, we don't get to play the judge or the jury when it comes to eternity for people. Uh, God ultimately knows that. Uh, What we get to do is we get to rely upon the truth that he's shared in his word. And we know that for those who believe, whose faith is in him, uh, they get to reign forever with him. So what if you don't know? Where's the hope in that? Well, not only does death not have the final say in the lives of those that follow Jesus that you loved, death doesn't have the final say in your life. What do I mean by that? As a follower of Jesus, if our affection is firmly planted on him and who he is, we ultimately know that this life is not even about the relationships we experience here. They're a part of it. But the very best and the very greatest things in those people that we love are just tastes of the very goodness and greatness of God. And so even though those that we love who may not have had faith in Jesus die and it causes us to mourn and it brings us very heavy sorrow, we know that ultimately there's coming a time when we ourselves will die and as people who are followers of Jesus will rise victoriously over the grave and suddenly every tear will be wiped away. That's the promise in Revelation Chapter 21, there will be no more death, no more crying, no more mourning. Every tear will be wiped away. And so those who have faith in Jesus, who believe in Jesus, who've walked through the door of Jesus, know that death doesn't have the final say in their life. You may have questions about those you love who may not have followed Jesus, but you can keep allowing those tears to push you right back to him. And he walks you through knowing that death does not have the final say. God has conquered the grave. We looked at it last week. The reality of it is it changes the door of our grief. So how do we grieve as people who have hope? What does that mean for us? Does it mean that if we have hope, if, if, if he's conquered the grave, that we can no longer cry in the face of sorrow? No, we still cry. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a dominant philosophy in our culture that that says that it's not okay for men to cry, and I've even heard some women say the very same thing. We see tears as, as a sign of weakness. And so maybe if Christ has conquered the grave, maybe we shouldn't cry, but unfortunately that's not the case. Crying is very healthy oftentimes. You look through Scripture and you see very powerful, devoted servants of God whose lives were marked by tears. Joseph cries and weeps. Job, successful leader in his day and age, cries and weeps. 
David, who's described as being strong, ruddy, and handsome, king over Israel, cries and weeps. And there are others, but probably the one we know the most is Jesus himself, right? Think about that episode in John 11 where I read about him being the resurrection and the life. Here's Jesus, God's son, who's aware that God has sent him to this world to die for humanity. He knows what awaits him. He's aware of the resurrection that will come. In fact, he probably recognizes that he's going to lift his eyes to the heavens, give thanks to the Father, and call Lazarus from the tomb. But even in the midst of that, what does he do? He cries. It's okay to cry. So Jesus, when we walk through him, changes grief in that not only do we cry, but those tears, like a river, should take us back to the ocean of God's grace and glory. And so tears don't lead us into this deep well of despair where there's no way out. Those tears should lead us to triumphant risen Christ. So cry, but let those tears take you to the one who conquered the grave. Let him help you navigate the sorrow. Let him help you navigate the sadness. How do we grieve as those who have hope? It's okay to cry, let those tears take you to Jesus. It's okay to seek help from other people. Uh, Not all deaths affect us the same. Uh, Just this last week, my roommate in college, um, we were best friends in college and still can pick up right where we left off. I got word from him a week ago that his father had died suddenly. Uh, They don't know if it's a heart attack or or what it was, but he was gone. And so we traveled over to uh, Greenfield, Indiana, and I saw him. I guarantee you that death affected my roommate way more um, than even a death he heard casually through the news. Not all deaths are, are, are created equal for us and how they affect us. And so it's okay to go to someone to talk through those things, for them to guide you. God has equipped the body of believers with a multitude of gifts. And some people are incredibly gifted in providing wise counsel, even therapy in the midst of grief. And so as you grieve as one who has hope, not only do your tears push you to Jesus, but it's okay for your questions and your doubts and your hurt to push you to a wise uh, counselor who's a follower of Jesus. That may mean that they have a Christian counseling practice. It may mean that they're in another counseling practice, but they're a devoted follower of Jesus. The important thing is for you as a follower of Jesus, if you need help navigating those waters, you go to someone who's a devoted follower of Jesus because they will help push you back to the promises and the purposes and the help and the hope of God. When we walk through the door of Jesus, it changes our entire experience of grief. How do we grieve as those who have hope? We enter into others' lives and we encourage them. In in 1 Thessalonians 4, after verse 14, Paul starts describing what it will look like when the dead in Christ rise. Intentionally, we're not mining verses 15, 16, and 17 because There's just not time to do that in a single message, uh, let alone when we're focusing on grief. But I want to take you to the words of verse 18. As Paul speaks about the hope that these believers can have in Jesus because of his resurrection, he says these words, verse 18 says, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. 
we have a task to enter into the lives of other people as they hurt and to encourage them and remind them that death does not have the final say. The the words that come to mind as I I read this passage are words that Paul shares elsewhere. In Romans chapter 12, verse 15, he says to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Or maybe you memorized it in the King James Version. Weep with those who weep. We're called to enter into other people's lives. Our theme for the entire year at Lebanon Christian Church is to be near. To be near to Jesus, to be near to each other, to be near to our neighbor. And death, like few other circumstances in life, offers us the opportunity to be near to people. To cry with them. To encourage them about the hope that we have in Jesus as they've walked through his door. And as we travel with one another through some of the harshest terrain, God has a way of lifting our spirits. So enter into someone else's life. Why? Because Jesus changed everything. You walked through the door of Jesus' love. You know his incredible purposes for you. So remind that one who is broken and distraught and despairing of who he is and what he's done. Jesus changes the door of grief. He conquered the grave. It doesn't have the final say. I think back to the, the bicycle. And when my father taught me how to ride, it opened up a whole other world to me. And when you come to see who God is and what he's done for you in Jesus Christ, it should open up a whole new experience for you of life. A whole new experience of life's worst and life's best. A whole new experience of death because you know that the grave does not have the final say. This morning, if you are not a follower of Jesus yet, and you want to know how Jesus changes everything, here's what I'd encourage you to do. Uh, To reach out to someone you know that invited you here. Uh, To fill out a connection card, if that's the best way, and and place it in one of the baskets at the back of the room. You can come forward after our closing song, and uh, we'll visit with you and, and help you begin to see who Jesus is. But the door of Jesus changes everything, including the door of grief. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for your love, your hope, uh, your might, your majesty. And God, you know that one of the hardest things we experience in this life uh, is the sorrow that accompanies the death of those that we love. But God, we give thanks to you because we know that you have given us victory over death. We give thanks to you knowing that you've given us purpose uh, in the face of the grave and beyond the grave. And God, may we rest in those realities and may they shape our lives with incredible hope. Help us to be informed. Help us to inform others. And may the world be transformed as we live in the reality of your love and life. Amen.